Welcome to the May slash June issue of the RehabCast from the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. I'm your host, Dr. Ford Vox. Now in this combined episode, we're going to be talking with research leaders at two different VA medical centers, both of whom are investigating topics that are core to the diverse disciplines of rehabilitation medicine. First up, we're going to be talking with Dr. Kath Bogey of the Lewis Stokes Cleveland Department of Veteran Affairs Medical Center about her innovative work in developing a predictive science of pressure wounds. And then we'll be speaking with Dr. Jonathan F. Bean of the VA Boston Healthcare System about our aging population and where rehabilitation medicine needs to better converge with geriatrics. Let's get right to it. Joining us today on the Rehab Cast is Dr. Kath Bogey. Dr. Bogey is out with the paper, What Lies Beneath? Why Some Pressure Injuries May Be Unpreventable for Individuals with Spinal Cord Injury. Uh, Dr. Bogey is a uh, research scientist and principal investigator. Uh, she is with the Advanced Platform Technology Center at the Lewis Stokes Cleveland VA Medical Center and an associate professor at Case Western Reserve University in the departments of orthopedics and biomedical engineering. Dr. Bogey, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. So it's, it's the rare scientific paper that gets this kind of literary title, What, what Lies Beneath. Uh, were you surprised <laughs> that the, the journal was willing to go with that? Did you pick that out? Um, I was kind of surprised, but I wanted to make something that would, I wanted to have a title that would make people want to read the article because what I, I feel that what we are trying to let people know about is something that's really important that people haven't necessarily been thinking about in this way before. Um, and I actually slightly borrowed it from a presentation that Dr. Stephen Spriegel gave where he gave talks about, talked about pressure ulcer problem in a similar manner. I see. <laughs> well, that's a whole movement in scientific communication now, and I think it's very important. Uh, you know, the too many findings or just kind of sitting out there uh, unread, hidden behind uh, kind of uh, language that certainly the layman can't understand, but to some extent even other clinicians uh, may not be interested in as much either, uh, have even, and, and we're even seeing movements uh, uh, for people to kind of shorten talks, the scientific presentations, streamline posters, and that type of thing. So uh, I'm glad to see the, the journal doing that as well, and, uh, and we'll see how that evolves uh, over the years. But, but this topic in particular is something that it, people are dealing in and out with every single day, as certainly as you discuss in the article, uh, of primary interest to every spinal cord injury patient and clinician and rehab center out there, major league quality measure uh, wounds, uh, so financial uh, stuff associated with it, uh, both in terms of penalties and uh, costs uh, on the back end and everything. So you couldn't have picked a uh, more uh, more relevant area of research, which I'm sure is part of the big reason why while you're in there. Um, mm -hmm. I guess before we get into the details of uh, this particular study, let, let's kind of talk about your work in, in general and uh, in the center that you're at, the uh, the Advanced Platform Technology Center. If you could tell us a little bit about some of the, the highlights of uh, how you all are organized and what you're doing. Okay, sure. So, so I'm a biomedical engineer, but I've always worked with clinicians uh, in spinal cord injury who are treating people who have acute and chronic spinal cord injuries and dealing with the challenges of rehab. So my work has always been interdisciplinary. And as part of the Advanced Platform Technology Center, I'm the director there of health maintenance and monitoring. So we are looking at developing technologies that are going to improve the healthcare of veterans. 
Um, so my area is for pressure ulcers and we have other people who are working on other problems that really affect people with spinal cord injury, such as bowel and bladder maintenance um, and uh, lung function. Um, so we develop a wide range of technologies. And, mm -hmm. and as I said, my area specifically is, is pressure ulcers because that's an area that has been around forever and doesn't seem to be going away. It is definitely not going away, although this seems like an uh, definitely an important uh, spot along the way to where we might be needing to kind of uh, divert more of our attention towards this type of technology that, that you're utilizing. So let's uh, go ahead and get into it with this uh, paper. And, and just to uh, tell the audience, too, I mean, you're, you're highly involved in this field, too, that I see uh, in PubMed. You're involved in uh, looking at practice guidelines and pressure injury management and so forth, and uh, heavily in, involved in uh, wound research and that type of thing, so all, all elements of uh, the field. Uh, yes, yes, uh, along with um, being a principal investigator and associate uh, at a case, I'm also uh, on the board of directors with the Wound Healing Society and with the National Pressure Ulcer Advisory Panel, both of which are heavily involved with treating and preventing wounds and trying to implement clinical practice guidelines more effectively. So that's kind of where my research is, is, is the treating, trying to identify risk and then trying to treat or prevent, prevent and then tre treat pressure ulcers. Okay. Um uh, how would you, uh, what would you characterize as, as the main uh, evaluation methods and technologies that are typically utilized in uh, assessing a person with SCI for wound risk uh, now and uh, kind of getting them in, in the right wheelchair and so forth? Um, what, um, what is the, the current kind of standard of, of care? So the standard evaluations that are done when somebody uh, is admitted at least at our facility is just to use the Braden scale mm -hmm. which has been very well established it is some elements of it are fairly objective and some of them are somewhat subjective but that's just a numerical scale that's used and if they score above or below a certain threshold then people are considered at high risk or low risk uh, mm -hmm. it, in terms of for wheelchair seating clinics, the, the tool that's most frequently used is to use interface, measure seating interface pressures. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's not really looking directly at risk, although it historically has been considered to be a way of measuring risk. Um, they are also looking at making sure that the, how people do weight shifts and how the wheelchair fits, whether somebody is, is correctly supported. Mm -hmm. So, so there's a lot of it that is kind um, much more sort of observation and and more subjective, if you will, rather than the objective measurements and the type of measurements that we did in our in our study. Sure, and uh, and we're training patients and families, and certainly the nursing and, and so forth, and everything is centered around you know kind of monitoring the skin and looking for those mm -hmm. areas of non-flanchable erythema and, and that type of thing. And but that only goes so far, you know, kind of what you can see might might be uh, too too late, as as, as you know well. Um, right. So so your your study, you're doing a number of uh, of measures here, kind of more of uh, kind of morphological. Uh, health, kind of what's going on with uh, uh, muscle and fat and so forth, and and, and you're certainly looking at uh, interface pressure too to kind of uh, compare, but also you know the oxygen pressure and uh, this 
what is the, the tissue health evaluation toolbox? Is that something that's in clinical use or is that just a research thing? So that's a tool that we've developed in my lab that I actually first started developing when I was working at the National Spinal Cord Injuries Research National, National Spinal Cord Injury Center in, at Stoke Mandeville in the UK, mm-hmm. um, where we, we kind of realized that just looking at the interface pressures is not going to tell you everything about what's happening with somebody's tissue health or mm-hmm. what they're sitting on, because it's not just what the pre- applied pressure is, it's what the applied pressure does. So we introduced measuring using tissue, transcutaneous oxygen measurements, so we're looking at oxygenation in the loaded mm-hmm. skin. And then we also, uh, the current technique that we, the suite of tests we do includes using laser Doppler to measure surface skin, skin level uh, blood flow, but also, and also using near infrared spectroscopy to measure blood flow slightly deeper in, the, in what putatively should be the muscle tissue. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to look at using all of these techniques, which we've been using for quite some time and which have been published on and that are accepted so that we could relate them to the new measurements that we're doing using these CT scans. So we can say to people, yeah, we know what is happening with the standard me- mechanism measurements that you, you recognize, but now we're looking at something novel and see, seeing how they relate one to the other. The ex- extrinsic measurement techniques that have been around for quite a while with this novel way, and CT scans obviously been a while around a while, but we're actually measuring analyzing those CT scans in a slightly different way. Yeah, so the the real uh, heart of the study is this uh, intramuscular adipose tissue assessment. Um, and uh, 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 how long is that, has that been around? Is, is this the first study with that? Or uh, the, uh, certainly it's probably the, the first study designed this particular way, but could you tell us a little bit about the history of that? Yeah, so this is the first study that has, that has been done using that. We actually started this uh, we first published on this subject uh, about four years ago, where we started by compare, looking at CT scans for able-bodied individuals and comparing them with people with, to people with spinal cord injury. And we were using this technique, um, which is relatively straightforward, where you, when you look at a CT scan, as a clinician, uh, as an expert, you can look at it and you can tell what the various shades of grey mean. Mm-hmm. For the non-expert, it's not... As, as readily understandable. So we developed a technique where we use, we apply false coloration. So we highlight the areas that are muscle mm-hmm. and the area, the pixel by pixel, we're highlighting the tissue, the area that is muscle, the area that is fat, and the area that is low, low density muscle, which is kind of halfway between muscle and fat. And we can do that based on the, the Hounsfield units, which is how mm-hmm. gray or light gray or dark gray the the image is and by doing that we can produce an image that is pink and yellow instead of gray and gray and that's much easier for for the non-expert for the patient for their family for for anybody to be able to understand what it is you're looking at um and uh, and you're, I'm sure you're doing that manually now, but I doubt down the line if this became like a regular uh, clinical test uh, you know some uh, AI package could do that on a CT scan. I, I suppose uh, you could uh, have it have an algorithm that that did that. I would imagine. Yeah. So so we're we're working our way towards automating it um, uh, because my research assistant doesn't particularly want to carry on spending ten hours <laughs> per image, right. image if we do it when we're doing hundreds of them. Um, 
so the the challenging part as with any kind of anatomical soft tissue anatomy is that it is defining the, the region of interest the outline of the muscle particularly when we have some people who really don't have a very well-defined muscle area. So that, that's the part that we are still doing manually. We're automating a lot. Of, we've got to the stage where we can automate a lot of the, once we've defined our region of interest, we can automate the coloration, the pulse coloration process. Mm -hmm. But, but we're, not, we're, we're working in a lab setting. We're not trying to make a commercialized, streamlined app at this point. I see. Now, as far as the design of the study, so you're doing these measures, and it's like a uh, uh, re repeated measure uh, study. There, there are 38 SCI persons of all different, uh, from all different dates of injury and so forth, and various history. Mm -hmm. I mean, none of them have currently open active pressure wounds, but they may or may not have had one in the past. Um, in terms of uh, were, were the measures just done uh, at, at the beginning, yeah. at, the, at the end, or at multiple uh, stages? They were done repeatedly, so we did a, a baseline evaluation when people uh, were enrolled in the study, and we wanted to be sure they didn't have an open wound because we didn't want to be causing any extra problems um, with getting a, a supine uh, CT scan. But then we had we also followed them up, and they came back for repeat evaluations every year. Mm -hmm. um, and then as the study progressed, we actually started to see people if they were admitted with a pressure ulcer, we would see them once that pressure ulcer had healed so that we could see if there was a, a change acutely. But that data isn't actually in this paper. That's in further work that we're still doing. Okay. Is most of that, because we're, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, whether people, the differences in these measures and whether people who have a pressure ulcer history or not, um, and uh, perhaps I didn't uh, pay close enough attention on, on reading the paper. It wasn't quite clear if um, all of these occurred prior to the study or there are some in here that are during the duration of the study so you have a baseline on someone they go on to develop a wound in the three years and there's a follow-up measure and that type of thing there's some of that in here as well or we're talking about uh, before and after the, the three-year period so we had people who had no wounds at the beginning of the study people who might have had one very acutely post-injury and we had people who had had a history of having repeated ulcers. And we did see people who had had one go on to develop more, although not everybody who did. Some people really just have, seemed to have one wound acutely following injury. And then for the rest, at least for the period we were following them, no problems at all. But then a lot of the people who had recurrent pressure ulcers, particularly if they had this high risk factor with the high levels of intramuscular adipose tissue, um, they were, re were were developing pressure ulcers recurrently, and some of them we we actually couldn't follow up on the schedule that we wanted to because they had an open wound for months, years. Now, um, uh, one of uh, your your chief findings are right out of the box is uh, that the interface mapping alone is is inadequate. Uh, and again, you mentioned that that's something that we're doing doing pretty. Routinely, how can you how can you make that definitive statement from from the measures? Uh, it's just it's just clear. There's no absolutely no no relation between whether you have a, a wound or not. So we look. What we did was look at the interface pressures for all our cohort who had no pressure ulcers and the cohort who had pressure ulcers, and there was no difference whatsoever. In fact, we have looked you know one by one at, at people with with pressure ulcers and those who don't. And when you look at their pressure maps. 
you really cannot tell if they are going to be at risk or not. And not even their BMI is telling you. Yeah, I found that fascinating in the paper as well. You talked about body habitus is not is not a factor. You would, you would assume that, uh, okay, well, clearly this person is more overweight, is going to have more of that issue. That's not what's happening at all. No, it doesn't seem to be. I mean, I, I, I've been thinking about what, how, what this is sort of equivalent to, and it, it's kind of like cholesterol. You you can't tell what somebody's cholesterol is by looking at them. They could be fat, they could be underweight, um, and the underweight person could have a higher cholesterol. And similarly, we have people in, in our study who are underweight and they have very high intramuscular fat. Mm. So this intramuscular adiposity is not the same as obesity. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a different thing. Um, we don't quite know the different pathways. We We haven't done a full molecular analysis of this as yet, although we are working on that. Uh, yeah, the, it raises so many questions, and what you're talking about here is essentially proving the relevance of a new physiological measure of which we need to, now we need to know ground up about it, like, you know, why, why it occurs, and can we, certainly even can't, can we modify it given how important it is? So um, you're, you're, you're talking about that the fact that you've seen that this uh, intramuscular adiposity uh, is correlated with decreased microvascularity, which which we know is incredibly important in the, in the skeletal mm-hmm. muscle and, and less uh, tissue flow. So it's something that um, is uh, you know certainly directly connected to things that we know make make sense in terms of the amount of pressure that people uh, are are applying to say ischial tuberosity or sacrum or so forth. We always think about the the blood flow, but uh, maybe this is a big a big driver of that even. We don't know if it's cause or effect. I, I think it's probably more of a cause. I mean, we, we have come quite a long way with interface pressure mapping. If you if you think back uh, probably 10 years rather than five, there was a magic number. If somebody had a pressure above this threshold, that was going to cause problems. And it just wasn't true. Um, some huh. people would and, and the clinicians knew, and the therapists knew you could have somebody whose interface pressures were 70 and they were fine and you could have somebody whose interface pressures were 25 and they kept on breaking down mm-hmm. and I think the blood flow is you know blood flow is obviously essential if you're not getting blood flow to the tissues they're not going to survive um, what we hadn't been looking at was what is that interface pressure being applied to the quality mm-hmm. of the tissue and, and there has been some hints so Susan Grower published a paper not that long ago where she was she was mentioning you know we don't know the safe level we know we think it's different for everybody and what we're looking at is well this may be one of the drivers of why it's different for everybody yes, yes. Uh, you point out that that interface pressure can be basically the same um, but it's this intramuscular adiposity which is fluctuating again that's the one that that's correlated with whether you've got the wound or not mm-hmm just this very clear uh, relationship there. So um, uh, you suggest a threshold of uh, a 15%. At least it looks like people who have less than 15% of the adiposity uh, don't, don't develop wounds. Right, or don't develop recurrent wounds. So that, that's what we found in our, in our preliminary study. Now, we studied a diverse population, um, but we only studied you know, around 40 people. What we really need to do is look at a larger cohort and see if that bears out when we do uh, a larger study. So we're actually uh, fortunate enough to have received funding from from the VA rehab 
Rehabilitation and Research Service, and we're actually going to be starting a study to look at a larger cohort and see what happens uh, in that cohort um, starting later on this year. Okay. Well, you do a really good job of denigrating uh, interface pressure, but what about uh, tra- transcutaneous <laughs> oxygen pressure? Uh, is that useful? Yes, I do think that one is useful. Okay. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying I, I don't <laughs> like to denigrate. I said uh, interface pressure is very useful for, it's, it's, a, it's a great feedback tool for telling people, letting people know if they're doing an effective weight shift or mm-hmm. to know if the cushion is set up so that they're getting equal distribution of pressure. It's just sure. not going to tell you if that individual is going to get pressure ulcers or not. I see. It, it's, it's a good tool, but not for what it's been used for. <laughs> sure, yeah. But, but the transcutaneous, transcutaneous oxygen is telling you how much oxygen there is in the skin. Now, it's only looking at the skin and not every pressure ulcer starts at the skin. We do know that. But mm-hmm. at least that tells you how healthy is the, the skin oxygenation under load. And that is an important um, value to know. Mm-hmm. Um, we did some. I did some work well, back when I was in, in grad school, and we found that you could look at different thresholds. There was a, there was a threshold effect there as well. If you had a transcutaneous oxygen uh, level above about thirty millimeters of mercury, you were generally not going to develop a, a pressure ulcer because you had ad, adequate skin oxygenation. Mm. If it was below ten, 10 millimeters of mercury, you were in trouble, and and those folks that got pressure. Um, pressure injuries. So yeah, that that I do think is a reasonable, you know, that is an important measurement. Now, uh, the title of the paper, uh, although literary and uh, what lies beneath, uh, is somewhat pessimistic, uh, but also certainly, uh, I guess, uh, proving a point about the importance of these measures, which we apparently have not even known about until now. <laughs> you know, why some pressure injuries may be unpreventable. Uh, so an important concept there that uh, has huge implications just for, you know, healthcare and the business of healthcare and how we take care of people. But, uh, you know, where there's all this uh, effort um, on trying to prevent uh, pressure injuries. And, uh, but there's, I, I suppose it's unpreventable to the extent that uh, we don't know what ultimately can change tissue adiposity, which appears to be the most Im- important thing. Uh, there, there are going to be some mm. folks who have such high adiposity that no matter we get the best care at the best rehab center uh, and the most uh, diligent attention by the patient and family as well to doing everything right that they've been taught, pressure wound can can still happen. Certainly, certainly not a marker that uh, that the quality of care was, was low by any standards that anyone knows today. Right. I mean, that was really exactly what I wanted to point out. You know, there is this huge problem that Medicare considers pressure ulcers to be an avoidable issue sure. and and what I wanted to, to we, what we wanted to highlight is that they're not always uh, avoidable and if, mm-hmm. especially and, and for people with spinal cord injury they may be unavoidable for a long period of time um, mm-hmm. we don't we, we, no, we've only just started looking at this we don't, at the moment, we don't have a way in which to treat it directly. But that doesn't mean to say we can't. You know, if we don't know it's there, we don't know how to, you, you can't treat something you don't know. I think once we start, if you know something's there, you can start doing something about it. Sure. And hopefully we can also motivate um, NIH to fund projects that address pressure ulcer care because it is a huge problem. And What's your... What's your hunch on exactly what, uh, 
you know, intramuscular tissue adiposity is at this physiological level. I mean, it's um, it's obviously a measure of kind of the quality of that of that muscle, and uh, people, you know, normally you're going to have some fat mixed in with with muscle muscle tissue. Do you th do you think it's an actual pathology? I mean, I, I suppose there's plenty of healthy people out there. We all have different levels of just at baseline uh, amounts of fat in our in our muscle. Is is that kind of what you think it is? Just a morphological genetic difference. Uh, there's definitely some part of it, but I because uh, we we did look at able-bodied individuals and we did see a range, and there's a some overlap between spinal cord the spinal cord population and the able-bodied, but it's much higher in the majority of people with spinal cord injury. So I I think there's a combination of uh, nature and nurture. Um, there's a, a genetic predisposition, but the, also the the effect of trauma. You know, spin uh -huh. spinal cord injury causes systemic, has a systemic impact. Um, and maybe this is one of the other facts. We've always known that the, the muscles will atrophy below the level of injury, but we haven't really looked at how they change in other ways. Now, uh, there's there's certainly a literature out there for uh, kind of chronic levels of low-level electrical stimulation to kind of help build up uh muscle tissue even even passively, you see you know, studies in ICU patients, uh, quadriceps, things like that. Um, uh, I know uh, you've been involved in some electrical stimulation research. Is that something you think is worth exploring? Uh, yeah, we're actually continuing that research. Um, so we, we did a study, I did the same several years ago, we used percutaneous stimulation and the reason well, partly because I'm was affiliated with the FES Center where we do it. They tend to do implanted systems. But the reason for using an implanted system for gluteal stimulation is because the nerve, the motor point for the nerve, is, is relatively deep. I see. So when you do surface stim, you don't get a good contractile response from the gluteal muscle, which is what you need if you want to try and exercise that muscle and reduce the adiposity. Um, and and we found we we did actually we've actually studied this that people kind of get tired of trying of putting surface stim electrodes on them on the muscle sure. motor point. Whereas if you have an implanted system, it's there and you switch you, you just press a button and it works. Um, mm -hmm. So we actually had done some preliminary work um, a few years back now where we were using a percutaneous system where the leads came out from the through the body for, for mm -hmm. the skin. And that worked very well in terms of providing weight sh automatic weight shifting for up to 10 hours a day, and it actually improved muscle, the muscle conditioning, conditioned the muscles, and it bulked up the muscles just as it would if you, you know, exercise any muscle that hasn't been exercised for several years. Um, but the problem was that again there was an exit site that the users had to take care of. So we're now actually at a fairly early stages, but we're developing uh, a new. A uh, small flexible stimulator that will be implanted that people will be able to so that we have a, a fully implanted system that can provide weight shifting. A fully implanted system uh, that uh, uh, how is it powered? It will be inductively powered so an external okay. co external core no battery no implanted battery um, mm -hmm. and uh, our concept is that this stimulator is going to be something that doesn't even need doesn't need a full surgery so, mm -hmm. so it would be implantable by a physiatrist or in an outpatient setting. Well, that sounds uh, very innovative, and and uh, you know, hopefully, uh, given the the body of research suggesting that um, 
uh, muscle can be built up that way. That will certainly apply to areas where these pressure wounds are so prone. Um, well, mm -hmm. uh, so Dr. Dr. Bogey, uh, it, it definitely sounds like you've got uh, quite a large pathway of different avenues where you're investigating all potential aspects of, of this research. Certainly, I think that this uh, publication and in, in the archives and hopefully this interview too will help get out the word to people about the fact that, uh, hey, these new measures are being investigated and may be of high relevance. Um, it does seem like there is such a huge lag towards uh, publication of research like this and changes in clinical practice. You, it sounds like you have a lot of important information to give uh, clinicians about kind of exactly you know where things like pressure mapping make sense and where they don't. And this type of CT technology is something that could be moved along at a little bit faster pace um, beyond what you're already doing now in terms of uh, the work at, at your center and getting these publications out there. What would you like to see uh, from kind of the rehab industry uh, in order to move uh, this information along faster? Are there, is there something that the, the societies could do? Do you feel like there's enough support and interest in this area of research even beyond your own center? Um, you know, uh, how, how could things move along more, more quickly for patients? Well, that, that's, a, that's a big question. I, I mean, I, the publication in the archives is, is a really important step because it gives us a board, access to a board readership and, and hopefully the readership will look at this. You know, we have a slightly catchy title and, and they'll read it and, and see that actually doing the CTs, the, the, the techniques that we have used are things that are available in every hospital. The analysis is, is not universally uh, available, but that's something that we can move towards. If When there's pe people of show interest, we are more than happy to translate it. So I think this is something that would make improve the quality of life for a lot of people if we can, you know, more information will enable better care. Sure. Um, I mean, it would be a dream in terms of just kind of daily life in a rehab center treating SCI patients to be able to know which ones need this extra level of education and guidance that you're at super high risk or so forth. And even also to be able to reassure certain patients, a little bit less likely in your case, but obviously you've got to do all these techniques and pay attention to what you're what we're teaching you and so forth, but you know, kind of reassurance to some patients, others uh, appropriate, mm -hmm. higher uh, level of intervention to be able to to anticipate what folks are going to need. Uh, that is kind of the, really the next stage in, in rehab medicine for, for for a whole list of diagnoses, right. not just SCI and pressure wounds. But um, that that would be great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and personalized medicine is is where we're moving, and and this is a small small contribution to that. Fantastic. Well, I appreciate your time here today, helping uh, further explain your, your study for, for the audience. And obviously, I encourage everybody to go read it for themselves in, in the journal. And uh, 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 thank you for the work that you're doing. Well, this has been great. And thank you for, for talking to me. And joining us now on the RehabCast is Dr. Jonathan F. Bean. Dr. Bean is Associate Professor of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Harvard Medical School, and he is Director of the New England Geriatric Research, Education, and Clinical Center, which is based at the Boston VA Medical System. Dr. Bean and his colleagues are authors of a special communication in the journal entitled, Geriatric Rehabilitation Should Not Be an Oxymoron, A Path Forward. Dr. Bean, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. 
Well, the specific impetus for today's interview um, is a special communication that you published in the archives. It's entitled, Geriatric Rehabilitation Should Not Be an Oxymoron, A Path Forward. So uh, you're joined by a couple of your colleagues in uh, your research center on this paper, and you kind of outline a bit of a, a call to arms, I suppose, for the, for the PM&R field and, and talk about the history of its relationships with uh, geriatric medicine uh, in the past. Uh, you uh, are cer certainly appear to be the, the right person to be writing such an article. You have a, a long career in geriatric rehabilitation research, which in and of itself is uh, somewhat of a, uh, uh, of a small field within PM&R, which is part of the problem, and you argue that it should be bigger. Uh, I guess tell us uh, why, why you decided to, to write this piece and, um, and what, uh, what you were hoping to, to achieve. Yeah, uh, well, for the past 25 years, I've been working in, in uh, well, not quite 25 years, but 20 years, I've been uh, working in this area of clinical research. And at the interface of, of physical medicine and rehab and geriatric care, and the interesting thing about it is that both specialties, both disciplines, and I could generalize this to rehabs, rehab providers of all stripes, are focused on the same thing, which is enhancing and improving physical function amongst their patients. And for me, when I first stepped into the field of being a consultant to geriatricians, this was kind of a surprise to me. I thought, you know, we were the only field that really prioritized function as, as sort of the pinnacle of our pyramid. But, sure. but geriatrics does as well. Um, but each field, surprisingly, despite this common perspective and focus, really don't know that much about the other and, and don't work synergistically um, to really serve the needs of their patients as often as they should. And, and it's incredibly important right now because the fastest growing segment of our population is the oldest segment of our population, and they have tremendous needs with regard to physical functioning. Mm -hmm. Which of the of the si relative size of the field? Certainly, uh, geriatric medicine, as my understanding, is a smaller field within internal medicine. Uh, where do they stand in terms of the general population of physicians with regards to PM&R? Do you know? You know, I, it's hard for me to. Say. I don't know exactly the number of geriatricians. I know they have long recognized that there will never be enough geriatricians to mm -hmm. impart knowledge. Um, to, well, to serve all the all the aging patients in, in the, like in the U.S. and across the world. So what they've tried to do is really leverage their knowledge into other fields, into other surgical and related specialties, and into other medical specialties. And they've been working on that for, I guess, also almost two decades. Um, mm -hmm. And so, um, and and PM and R actually is kind of similar in the sense that there's a lot that we need to offer and have to offer in terms of rehab science. And again, I think this is another area that wasn't highlighted in our article where we could learn from geriatrics and try to um, implement similar initiatives to impart rehab principles across other specialties. Um, now, geriatrics, uh, the, the field is, is not not foreign to the concept that, that rehabilitation exists and that older people might need rehabilitation, but uh, their, their forays into that uh, have not really interacted with the PMR community, or actually they've issued some overtures, I gather, to us in the past that, that we have rebuffed uh, to some extent. Could you tell us a little bit about that history? Yeah, um, you know, way back in the beginning, um, 
of the specialty, they actually reached out to physical medicine and rehab uh, at that time to the academy and asked, you know, would you like to have your clinicians be considered eligible to sit for the boards in geriatric care? And and the physiatrists at the time, the leaders said, no, thank you. I don't mm-hmm. really know the rationale for that, but just know that they did. And so physiatrists are not eligible to sit for the geriatric boards, and that may be part of it. Um, family mm-hmm. physicians can, obviously internists can. Um, but then also more recently, as part of those initiatives, there was there has been some uptake in terms of training clinical researchers and clinicians to embrace geriatric principles. But um, there hasn't been the uptake in PM&R as there have been in, in other specialties. Um, and and that's, that's really a shame, especially given the common interests and common focus on physical functioning. You talk about how in the, in the interim, certainly the geriatric medicine field has uh, endeavored to create its own functional measures, and some of which uh, I think you're arguing in this paper, uh, we ought to be more educated about and perhaps start using as PM&R physicians treating the older patient uh, population. Uh, could you tell us about those? Yeah, well, there actually were common threads between both fields in terms of defining physical function and disability. And, um, you know, it started with what was called the, the NAGI model, which was a, 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 so, a model that was developed by social scientists back in the mid-60s and was used as a conceptual model to help define disability. But with the advent of the ICF model by the field of, of rehabilitation, there was really, a, if you will, a parting of ways. And, and, and in the field of geriatrics, I think that they also sort of lost that focus on functioning. And they've really embraced over the last decade a larger focus on frailty, which is a related but different concept. And what we argue in this editorial is that there really should be a harmonization between concepts of frailty and concepts of physical function, conceptual models of physical functioning and disability that are driving each corresponding field. Mm-hmm. Frailty really gets at and recognizes that with a decline with, with aging and the accumulation of disease on multiple body systems, that there's less resilience among individuals that are frail to overcome a stressor. Mm -hmm. And so that's a way they've operationalized ways of characterizing frailty, and they've been extending that to a number of surgical specialties and medical specialties to help risk stratify older patients for procedures and decision-making. But if we start talking about resilience and recovery, which are interrelated, that's that's the work of rehab. And so we should really be understanding these conceptual models of frailty because the, the models that we use, the ICF model, mm-hmm. do a much better job of breaking down how a provider might actually treat an individual who is frail. Um, Right. So would you argue that the frailty index is somewhat pessimistic and that there appears there's nothing to do about it? Or maybe it's about withdrawing care or uh, not offering certain surgical procedures, but, but instead you would say that the rehabilitation model would say, well, let's do something about this index? Not as much that as the fact that the, the frailty model is, is really a, more of a two-dimensional model. It just mm-hmm. says 
any deficit in which we're interested in any in any domain in which we're interested is counts as a deficit and we're going to add those up and and then and whammo you've got a, a sense of frailty in re- rehabilitation we'll know that someone might be weak and have a deficit in strength but that's not equivalent to a deficit in the ability to walk or climb stairs because we know that walking and climbing stairs draws on a number of different body systems. And so just because somebody's weak may not, you know, depending on where they're weak, that may impact their stair climbing some or it may not that much. But also Mm -hmm. if we want to improve stair climbing and rehab, we know we have to focus on more than just strength and we'll maybe break it down and think about speed of movement and the flexibility and other attributes that we can improve with rehabilitative care. So there's greater dimensionality in the ICF model than there is in a frailty model. But there's opportunities that both provide and with better understanding across fields, we'll be able to use both concepts in order to better serve the aging population. so uh, you're also talking about how kind of the, the semantics can box people in and in terms of their thinking not being broad enough about all the domains of function as perhaps reflected in the ICF model. You in particular took on the term mobility impairment. Uh, tell us your beef with mobility impairment. Yeah. So it's really, um, if we think about the terminology that characterizes disablement, we you know, the, the best context is really the ICF model. And when we think about organ systems or body systems that are deficient, that corresponds to impairment. But then the higher order function are activities that we will be measuring and evaluating in people. When they're deficient, they are limitations. And then at the highest level, individuals that can't participate in their role in life are considered to be restricted. And it's important when you use the term mobility impairment, you're, you're taking an activity and you're using a, a term that corresponds to a single body system impairment. And while that may seem innocuous, what ends up happening is that it ends up being sort of a tower of babble of terminology where people don't really know what each other means and what they're trying to communicate. And mm-hmm. I've seen this in action clinically, and I've seen it in the context of research and really just communicating ideas and principles of care. So I think it's very important that across, as we try to, again, harmonize concepts and understandings and approaches between fields, that we start to use the same language. Now, uh, while you do encourage that uh, geriatricians go ahead and and adopt more of this ICF model. You are talking here to a rehab audience and telling us that, again, there are some things we should pay attention to and learn from some of the great classics of uh, geriatric medicine uh, in terms of, you know, the the five M's and thinking about those beers criteria and so forth. You even talk about a particular handbook that uh, PM&R physicians ought to be aware of who are, who are treating uh, older patients. Tell us about some of the, some of the things that uh, we can learn from about how, how geriatricians approach their patients. Sure. Well, one thing that I would emphasize is that we in rehabilitation should also really ensure that we understand the ICF model ourselves because it and and because because the the call to arms for both geriatricians and rehab providers is the fact that the ICF model will be the basis of ICD-11 coding in the future. And so we, if function's going to be coded, 
in medical records, we should darn well understand the terms and know how to how to conceive um, how we're characterizing our patients. But in terms of resources from geriatrics, I, I mentioned earlier the initiatives that the American Geriatric Society has taken to educate other fields. One of them is a handbook called Geriatrics at Your Fingertips, which you can get electronically, or if you're old school, you can get a handbook and stick it in your pocket. And it's a really wonderful, quick resource that can help people in addressing common geriatric concerns, syndromes, conditions, thinking about prescribing pain meds, for example, in an older patient. Um, how would you adjust your prescription accordingly uh, and, and so forth? Um, so that's been a very, uh, that is a really powerful tool, something that I've used with a lot of my trainees when they've spent time with me, and uh, it's, it's really a helpful resource. Um, now, we talked about the fact that uh, you're in the geriatrics research unit there at the Boston VA, um, and uh, you're the only one such uh, director in, in the country. And uh, tell us about how you got into that role um, and, you know, kind of um, uh, what, what drew you to this, to this area of PM&R, and, uh, and let's, let's explore that a little bit. Yeah, sure. Well, in, in terms of my research path, I actually started with, an, like many physiatrists, with an interest in, in sports medicine and exercise physiology. Um, and at the same time, there was a recognition and an interest in physical functioning. Um, I also appreciated the fact, at, this was back in the, in the 90s, what, that, uh, that the, again, the fastest growing segment of our population was the oldest segment of our population. It was, you know, the baby boomers. And so, um, I, you know, those principles of, of exercise physiology, of focusing on physical function, and even the elements that, that comprise sports medicine were actually very relevant and important to the care of older patients. And so, um, it just presented a really unique opportunity and um, really exciting lines of research. Um, and it was an area that wasn't really addressed. A geriatric rehab had not been prioritized, and so it was, it was wide open. Um, mm -hmm. As my career progressed over the years to more recently, one, you know, the, the opportunity to lead a GREC uh, occurred, and, and I jumped at it. Uh, GREC's as you said, stand for Geriatric Research, Education, and Clinical Centers. And they were actually mandated by Congress uh, to exist within the VAs. That was in the, in the mid-'80s. Again, for the same reason, recognizing that this large segment of veterans were aging and there needed to be knowledge about geriatric care. So they established that these centers should exist. There's 20 such centers in the country. They tend to be run by a number of different specialties, but yes, I was the, am the first physiatrist to ever run a GREC. Mm -hmm. um, and so we've had uh, a focus on function, frailty, and rehabilitation within our GREC, and, and, uh, and that's what we've been prioritizing. As uh, the population uh, evolves and, and ages, and, and we see more of this uh, need of uh, rehabilitation interventions done well in the, in the older population, uh, PM&R probably needs to respond to that more so. I, I would imagine you, you 
uh, agree and are somewhat arguing in, in this paper. If you had your way, how, how would the field uh, respond? Does there need to be a subspecialty of geriatric PM&R, for example, or uh, does the amount of kind of core education around uh, geriatric PM&R need to be need to be beefed up. Uh, I suppose the argument could be made that uh, due to the lack of a highlight perhaps by a particular named uh, subfield uh, that it's uh, perhaps uh, not received the attention that it should. Yeah, you know, I want to think more broadly than just uh, the, uh, yes, I'm a physiatrist, I'm a physician, so in PM&R, but I would say in rehabilitative care in general, uh, I think it's really important to prioritize more the care of, of, of older patients for mm-hmm. the demographic reasons that I described, but also for the unique opportunities that our field has to actually promote physical functioning and prevent adverse health outcomes. R- right now, if you think about the healthcare costs that are really driving whatever side of the debate that people are on with healthcare, it's being driven by the high costs impacting the oldest segment and those with the most significant chronic diseases and combination of chronic diseases. And what is known and recognized is that you can actually use modes of of rehab or preventative rehab, prehabilitation, to actually prevent and compress loss of function and disability to the end of life. That you can actually modify the curve of functional decline as people age. This is a tremendous opportunity for the field of rehabilitation science, and I don't think that we've been embracing it as much as we should, uh, mm-hmm. and I think we need to. Yeah, there seems to be a preponderance of papers in this very journal uh, indicating uh, the, the need for uh, pre-rehabilitation, prevent disease states, and also in terms of, I think we've, we've interviewed authors of some papers that, that, in, that involve various forms of kind of community integration type activities, dance classes, and so forth to get people, um, uh, they're able to train folks and, and see kind of lower fall rates and so forth. And the social interaction, of course, going back to that ICF model, getting people into kind of a, a broader activity routine and connecting more so with their peers, uh, you know, adds quite a lot uh, to uh, to the health uh, uh, as we age. I think we're seeing a lot in terms of the recognition that loneliness is, as people age has um, really become somewhat of a of a national health crisis in of itself, and can certainly lead to a lot of a lot of health healthcare problems. Absolutely. In fact, even in our center, we there one of our um, some of our investigators have done some. Uh, recent papers looking at social engagement and actually seeing that if favorable social engagement will mitigate the influence of of cognitive impairment on falls and cognitive impairment on on functional decline. And so, um, which represents a really intriguing avenue of treatment, you know, that maybe we should be thinking about not only correcting people's impairments and functional limitations, but getting them more socially engaged. And, and yes, that is really important for the older population. But all of what you said highlights a different paradigm. It's, a, it's not mm-hmm. a disease model paradigm. It's a focus on wellness and health paradigm. And um, again, re- rehabilitation can be at the forefront of, of, that, of those efforts. And uh, it's an opportunity that we have. Um, and uh, 
specifically on this this precise topic, you have uh, papers out just recently on on prehabilitation. You're doing uh, this REACH trial. Mm -hmm. um, uh, can you tell us about that? Yeah. So um, this is a, a clinical trial where where what we tried to do was create a um, use an iPad tablet to. Um, create fewer visits for patients um, in an outpatient rehab program that was targeting the prevention of functional decline and the prevention of disability and adverse health outcomes. We had mm -hmm. done another clinical program where we had done an outpatient care program of physical therapy that had a number of innovative features. And at the end of three months, we saw that we could improve physical functioning quite substantially. But what we also saw was that 40% of the patients that were referred to that program didn't even engage with care because they had mobility problems. They couldn't get to an outpatient center frequently enough to engage in care. So what this did was we used an app on an iPad that helped leverage the physical therapist so they could use, they could add a chat feature, they could, the patient could download videos of themselves doing their own exercises. There were sort of behavioral prompts built into the the application. And what we found was that rather than giving the former 10 to 12 visits, we ended up giving only about six visits. And they could either be in the home or outpatient center and spread those out over a much longer period of time. And at the end of one year, we saw a reduction, well, actually improvements in physical functioning compared to controls, and excitingly, a reduction in emergency room visits. So it was not only affecting functioning, but also healthcare utilization. Now, as part of the, the VA system where your research is based, you're, you're in a system where uh, the outcome is going to be paid for by the single payer kind of no matter what, and there's got to be a whole lot of interest within, within VA of doing everything possible preventative. When you talk about the, the wider rehabilitation medicine field and all of us out there working in the traditional model where we're trying to fix what's broken rather than prevent the breaking in, in the first place, it, it becomes a real kind of existential problem how we start to try to implement this. Uh, any, any thoughts about how, <laughs> how we think more about this preventative model in terms of edging the system uh, towards that? Yeah, I, I, you know, it, it is this sort of strange experience now that medical centers have where uh, the right hand is talking about um, improving health and, and wellness for the patient population they serve, and the other half is garnering revenue from every episode of illness that mm -hmm. the patient has. So the VA is different. It is the largest accountable care organization in the country, and in fact, that's part of the reason why I moved over to the VA, because it presented opportunities. But the work that I described to you before was done outside of the VA. The, the um, both the REACH trial and the other that preceded it. And mm -hmm. and that was actually built around a Medicare model. So the, the original model of care was what you would give a patient who was at risk for falls. And Medicare now mandates on an annual basis that older patients get screened and for potential risk for adverse health outcomes, one of which is falls. And so this is a clinical program that a healthcare system could plug into primary care practices and say, sure, we'll bill Medicare, we'll treat your patients, and we can improve your physical functioning. And where we have to go next with our research is to get the, well, in that REACH trial, get that model of care, which isn't currently funded by Medicare, but to be able to get reimbursement for that um, mm -hmm. as well. That's, that's a next, 
our next strategic step. Fantastic. All right. Well, uh, I appreciate the chance to talk with you about the position paper today, Dr. Bean. And uh, I know you and your team are uh, up to, to quite a lot there at the Boston VA. I would encourage folks to turn to PubMed to see what I mean and just type in Jonathan F. Bean. Um, you're uh, uh, quite prolific, and I'm sure going to be more so with the output of this entire uh, uh, research center and all that collaboration. It's great, and it's great to see uh, uh, PM&R to some extent uh, taking a, a lead there at that at that prominent uh, VA, and uh, uh, look forward to seeing your your progress about raising the prominence of, uh, uh, of geriatric rehabilitation in general. Well, thank you very much, and I really appreciate the time. Thank you. And that's it for this May and June episode of the RehabCast from the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Please share this series with your colleagues. Until next time, goodbye. Join us in Chicago this fall for ACRM 2019, the largest interdisciplinary rehabilitation conference in the world. The main core conference and pre-conference instructional courses deliver six jam-packed days of evidence-based educational content for the whole rehab team, as well as patients and their caregivers. Please visit acrm.org for more information and follow hashtag ACRM2019.